Welcome to this week's Into the Wilderness podcast, and it is very, very sunny and warm, and has been all week. And your weather report is brought to you by. <laughs> oh, it's been good. This is the first time we've done an intro together for about five weeks. Yeah, over five weeks. Yeah. I mean, we've been together on the show, but not together in person. Yeah. No, it's been crazy actually. Yeah. It worked quite well. Yeah, it did. I do my intro. You do your intro. <laughs> Yeah. I leave all the stuff that I can't be bothered looking up for you to do at the end of the intro. Yeah, it's it's best way to do it when you're hundreds of half a world away. Half a world away. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it has been. Um, it was. I had a fantastic time over in Africa, following up on a lot of different stories. Got a lot of content to and get more, out. More shows everybody. to come from that. Uh, yeah, more shows and some a lot of images which I haven't even really touched yet. Uh, quite a lot of video footage, and also the the basis of some future projects i think as well um yeah i'm pretty i I can't tell anybody too much about it just now but uh, i think there's some exciting things to come awesome northern shooting show it's done done. again i can't can't believe it's been another year before we know it's gonna be another northern shooting when we when we drove out on the sunday we were like i can't believe two days has passed (laughs) Uh, it was it was great. Saturday poured with rain in the afternoon, but it wasn't all day. It was just a big summer downpour, and then was fine for the rest of the day. But warm both days. Sunday beautiful, and everyone was in really great spirits. Yeah, and thank you for everyone to uh, drop by because we appreciate it, and uh, it's awesome to see everyone year on year. And yeah, it was what a show it was. It's great to see some of the same faces, and it's awesome to meet all the new people. Uh, almost everybody seemed uh, pop seem to be listening to the podcast which is great yeah, yeah it's, ama- um, it's amazing we love we love seeing all of the people that listen so so we know that they are real yeah they are real people <laughs> and thanks to our buddy joe game changer barbecue yeah for Cooked cooking up weekend. a storm all weekend with our newly released a joint venture which is gunpowder seasoning rub seasoning seasoning yeah and there'll be more seasonings coming and there'll be some top-up packets coming you just need to go to our website thepacebrothers.com and it has all of the things on there because we've got new t-shirts that'll be on in a day's time podcast t-shirts podcast t-shirts we've got new baseball caps which is a first for us we've never done it it's um they're like it's like a worn green look actually i've had a few comments saying how cool it was um and it's got a leather patch on the front that says embrace your dna what more do you need yeah uh, so yeah, there's a whole heap of new things as well as the pre-order for Modern Huntsman Volume Three, and I have on my computer the um, sort of the pre-layouts ready to look at, which I haven't had a chance to to download yet and look. But I know from uh, being part of the editing process for some of the articles that you are in for a treat. I can't wait. If you thought the other, if the first two were good, which they were, they were awesome. This is going to be even better. The subject's going to be wildlife management, and it's going to blow you away. There's been a lot of people ordering Volume Two as well, and my advice is because it happens every single time, is that if you want Volume Two, oh, you've been swithering about it, get it now because we are sold out of Volume One, and we don't know where we're going to get that back. So you could be in the same position in a few months' time. Yeah, don't hold back. So don't hold back. Get Volume Two, pre-order Volume Three, and then. Uh, you'll be winning. And then when volume one comes out, then you can order that again. 
there's a couple of things uh, just to get through in the intro, just to mainly catch up because we're in the office together. Uh, Daryl, I know, mentioned this last uh, last time, two weeks ago, uh, but I'm going to mention it again because it's such an, an, an amazing um, change up for the industry. And that is that Holland and Holland have released a bursary scheme to support uh, young people in the countryside, um, gamekeepers, stalkers, gillies. All of the details for it are on their website. So just go to the Holland and Holland website and everything is there, but the bursary is going to be worth Holland 10. and Holland forward slash bursary. Yeah. Or if you, if you it's on go, the homepage. If you go actually. on their homepage, it says bursary. It's really simple to get It's to. worth £10,000. I mean, what an amazing way to support. It's, it's to support further education. Um, but it's it's brilliant. It's it's so good to see a big company really invested in the future. And we know from actually going around the factory when we were uh, getting imagery and stories, which uh, for Modern Huntsman, you're going to be able to read about Holland and Holland in volume three, that not only are they doing this, but they also have this incredible um, apprenticeship scheme within the factory to bring on young people to be the, the future of gun making. So they are investing in the future in every way. So congratulations to them, and if you are um, involved you know, in the hunting community in any way, shape, or form, and you think that that bursary might make a difference to you, then go and check it out, read the criteria, and get an application in. Yes, yes. In fact, I, I saw them wrangling people at the yeah, Northern Shooting Show. So, yeah, it was... Uh, I, I really hope this, you know, someone uses this, and they go far with it. Yeah, that's what it's for. Uh, Gallic Whiskies. Yes. So we work with the team um, at Gallic Whiskies and Gallic Gins, and there is a treasure hunt on. The first bottle has already been found. It has. It was found not too far away from where our office is, actually. Uh, So basically the premise is that there are going to be six bottles of whiskey hidden around Scotland throughout this year, the first of which has been found, Uh, the second of which there are two clues out right now. Uh, and every bottle of whiskey can be found. I didn't with see the second clue. Oh, I just put it out yesterday. Ah, okay. Um, so there'll be another clue going out next week, which will be clue number three for the second bottle, and that should guide you the last little bit that you need to find where the hin- hidden miniature bottle is, with the instructions of how to claim. Now, this is a physical thing. I I, I do not know how more clear I can make it online. I, it was stressing me out. I thought I was the one that was being stupid, but I don't think I am. I was being very clear, and I even got a few of my friends to read it to make sure they understood that it was a physical thing you had to go and collect. Yeah. And they you can't conf- go there in your mind. They confirmed with me that it, it 100% it reads like you need to go there because there is a few people online, and I'm sorry. If you're too stupid that you can't work out, then you, <laughs> then don't, you, can't you don't deserve the bottle. <laughs> so it is a physical item where you have to go read the clues and if you know where it is go and get it and once you get it guess what you get a bloody nice bottle of whiskey you do. if you want to read the clues uh we do share it on our social but uh, on instagram it's gallic whiskey gin so just look for gallic whiskey gin or gallic whiskeys on um uh, gallic whiskeys and gins on facebook, facebook as well yeah. and all the clues are there so Good luck. And go find it. Hint, it's not near our office anymore. No. We are trying to spread them out throughout the country. They are going to be literally all over Scotland, so... Yeah, there's no excuse. There's no excuse. Someone at some point will be close to one of these bottles. Mm. And you learn a bit of history on the way. That's the plan. Yeah, that is the plan. Trying to broaden our Scottish history. 
competition from two weeks ago, which was to win a bundle of goodies, including some Hornady, CZ. It was whatever we had in the office, Caldwell stuff. Um, uh, It was just a a picture competition on Instagram. And the winner is Gilbs Drake. There we go. Congratulations. And we have a new competition for this podcast. We have two. Now that we've sorted all the stuff, I know that I have two Hornady reloading manuals, the latest edition of the Hornady reloading manual. Uh, so there are two left, and I'm giving every all of our listeners the opportunity to win a copy of this, the second last copy that we possibly will ever give away. Yes. So it's you, coming to an end, people. Yeah. So you're going to have to. Uh, if, you're we'll we'll give everyone it. more details about about it, 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 the competitions and that coming to an end. Yeah, and the future of the podcast. It's very exciting. Don't worry, future. We're, we're not disappearing. No, <laughs> um, we ain't going anywhere. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll give everyone an update about you know. In fact, we'll we'll go over the last few years and then we'll look into the the future because we've been saying that we want to really bring the podcast to a next level. And it's happening. And it is it is happening. We, this is this is en route and we've got some amazing people that are backing us behind behind the scenes. Hmm. And and some new ways to help you help us yep. as well. But if you want to win this copy of the Hornady reloading manual, uh we I'm going to make it a doggy I'm going to make it a doggy oh, picture. I love dogs. Your, your best friend. But I've, sorry, it doesn't have to be. Generally, when you say your best friend in the field, people send dog pictures. It doesn't <laughs> have to be a dog picture. Just your best friend in the field, on the mountain, wherever you happen to be. But I guarantee you about 90% and of those we'll are going to be dog pictures. So tag us on Facebook. We, we love dogs. So. <laughs> tag us on Instagram. Send it to us via email. We don't care. And the one that tickles us the most will win the Hornady Reloading Manual. Picture competition, separate. Put that one in a box, new box. Picture competition, Northern Cheating Show. Amazing entries. Thank you very much for everyone that did enter. Uh, the winners have now been picked. We had hundreds of photos to go through. It took us a couple of hours in the evening at the Northern Shooting Show just to do the shortlist. Yeah, just to do the shortlist. And yeah, amazing pictures by everyone. Uh, sorry, not everyone can win. Uh, and it was actually really hard. We went through the shortlist and we had too many. We still had we were too, 70, we were too generous. 70 photos left after and we, we shortlisted. And we only could only pick four. Yeah, so four we, I think we narrowed the 70 to probably about 50. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we were no longer judging. Yeah, so we we removed ourselves from the final judging process. Uh, we had um, Bjorn from, from Sauer. Uh, we had Jens Tigges from um, Hornady. And Lucas from Hunt Magazine. They were the three judges, and I sat down and showed them all the stuff, and with the, between the three of them, they came to consensus. And tomorrow, the day after this podcast comes out, all four winners for each, uh, well, one winner for each category will be announced. Some cool prizes. Mm. Some very cool prizes. So hopefully, maybe it's something we can do next year. I think. I uh, hope so. I hope so. I'm going to work out a de- different emailing system, though, so that we're not getting... <laughs> hundreds of emails a day with individual pictures in them yeah everybody, <laughs> everybody needs to learn how to use dropbox or we transfer or we transfer yeah um there is a podcast coming out on monday uh, not which, ours not ours which i am on uh, i was a guest on the talk nerdy podcast with cara santa maria uh when i was in namibia so it was basically at the end of the cic conference and we sat down and 
talked about a lot of things. It's, I think it's a fairly lengthy podcast. I think it's probably almost two hours long. Uh, a lot of the focus is on hunting because it's not a hunting podcast. It's a science podcast uh, where they talk about all, the name. <laughs> all manner of really, really interesting things. Um, but I was being asked questions from a non-hunting perspective, which was really nice for me. It was refreshing to have those conversations. So please go and check that out. And I, I think it would be good, actually, if our podcast listeners could, could go and show their support. Yeah, of, I would really love the, it if you go show. over and listen. And, and, and give feedback as well, because obviously it's really hard when you have a very non-hunting podcast. But it is science-based, so, I mean, one of my best friends is a, a, a doctor in science, and they, are, they tend to be quite level-headed. Yeah, and pragmatic and, and, in approach. Yeah. In approach. Uh, but saying that, you know, you can, you, she might get some flack for it. It's, it was a lot of, I mean, it's a difficult subject anyway. We know that. That's why we have an entire podcast, uh, not entirely dedicated to hunting. We talk about fishing and, all, and adventure and everything as well. Uh, but it is often a focus. Uh, but we also talk about probably one of the most emotive subjects at all for quite some length, which is the culling of elephants. I mean, yeah. it doesn't get more controversial than that, really, on a global context. So please go and check that out on Monday. Leave some positive feedback. I'd massively appreciate it. Um, and even before you get to Monday, there's another podcast out um, with a lady called Maxi, uh, which is already there to download on the Talk Nerdy podcast. I just checked it out. I just checked it out um, on my and phone. It's, we, we spent um, some time with her. Uh, at the CIC conference and went and had a look at uh, one of the uh, community-run conservancies up north in Namibia. So that is, it's a brilliant inroad to the podcast that I end up doing with Kara, uh, which will be out on Monday. So I'd listen to both. Go and listen to Maxie's now and then listen to the one that I was on on Monday. And if you enjoy her show, there's 257 of them. So yeah, there's quite, quite plenty. plenty to listen to. Uh, and uh, for the picture, it's a picture of a microphone with some atoms flying around it, just, just to help you identify it on the artwork. Uh, the last thing that I had on my list here, apart from to tell you what this podcast is about, uh, was our shop. But I think we've pretty much covered that, haven't we? We've got new t-shirts, new yeah, hats, I think new we've covered rub. That. We've covered Go to the it. shop, check it out, and buy some stuff. We, honestly, the seasoning went down so well at the weekend. Like, it was crazy. And over this week, we've just been tagged nonstop in people cooking, which was really cool. We, we even had one person purchase... A whole heap of seasoning that we didn't even have for sale. It was just in a tub that we were using for cooking. And she was like, I want that tub. And that's the only tub I want because it was a huge tub of it. Um, so thank you. Thank you for buying that. <laughs> what else? Anything else on the list, Martin? No, I think that just leaves us uh, with the introduction to this show, uh, which is an incredibly fascinating podcast with the Bear Trust, uh, with uh, Logan Young and Jack Evans talking about, funny enough, bears, bears. mostly. Yeah. Uh, bears in North America and bears in a, in a global context. And if you're someone who has been uh, maybe a little bit confused about the, the bear debate in North America in particular, where they're looking at, uh, well, they're trying to open up grizzly bear hunting and they haven't banned grizzly bear hunting in BC, I think that this podcast is going to add a lot of clarity to that discussion. Try and name all bear species before you listen to the show as well. <laughs> and how many are there? How many are there? Yeah, that's I, good I'm, not, I'm not sure if all of them are, are actually mentioned on the show, but they do yeah, mention no, we, some we of the through, rare I think ones. we went through all of them. Okay, well, yeah. have a bit of fun. Name all the... How many bear species are there? And try and name them all. Yeah. There's some weird ones. It was a great podcast. Um, two very, very passionate guys. We recorded this uh, podcast 
in tile shops house yeah uh, kitchen <laughs> kitchen yeah <laughs> in montana right before we were away to leave uh, as well yeah. it was like the day before we were to leave I, I th- did we not leave that day i think we might have it was it was really last minute as we did we were trying yeah. to arrange ram them it in. ram it in but it was so worth it, was, it it was good of them to to give us their time i think they're actually launching a real sort of relaunching their website pretty soon um so i've been told and i know that this podcast will be going on their website so definitely go and check it out, um, bearstrust.org, and see what they're uh, see what they're up to, and kind of you can read the spiel. And we talk about the education program that they have uh, on this podcast, and all of that content is available on their website. Jack Logan, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. It's great to have a chance to speak with you guys again after meeting you a couple of nights ago. We did uh, we fixed all the world pro- world's problems with Jack's interview, <laughs> so you've got a lot to live up to, Logan. That's all right. We'll do my best. We haven't we, fixed the bears' problems. No, yet. we haven't because we saved <laughs> yeah, the bear issues. Right. <laughs> so this podcast is going to be focused mainly on bears, globally bears, because both of you are involved with the Bear Trust. Explain to us a little bit of how the Bear Trust was formed and what the the purposes of it are. So Bear Trust was founded in 1999 um, by A.C. Smith, and it really took shape because he saw a void where there was no outlet for a conservation group that was mentoring our youth into the great outdoors and really teaching kids about bears and having a conservation group that handled bear species specifically. So that's kind of how it took shape um, with Charles. And from there, it's grown over the last 20 years into really the leading conservation group for, for the eight north eight species of bear worldwide. Wow. And what is the, who's been involved with it? from sort of from the get-go how did you do you know the, the the background behind how they got support in the early days yep so charles kind of took it on um charles is one of the oldest members of boone and crockett he's a life member of rocky mountain elk sheep um you know he's the runner-up of the conservation award for north america a couple years ago i mean he's always been a committed conservationist and he actually ran the organization as the executive director for the first close to 10 years, um, where then he branched off and hired Melissa Hoglin, who, you know, has a PhD, is very well read in all things, biology, education. She's a great educator. And Melissa was with Bear Trust for a little over 10 years and really helped the organization take shape and really expanded what we do for kids. And now Melissa has retired from Bear Trust and is going on to do kind of some more research stuff, focusing back on research and is still working closely with us um, with some of the telemetry programs. Um, and yeah, so then that's when I came on board in the last eight months. And so what is your role now, Logan, within I'm, Bear Trust? I'm now the executive director of Bear Trust um, and have been since April 1st. And we had a, a chat with Jack about his, his background in the in the podcast that we did just solely with him. So we won't go over that again for this for this podcast. But what is it about your background that drew you to the position that you're in now? Because you, as well as this position in Bear Trust, you're also an outfitter, right? So I grew up in in West of Calgary, and my family ran an outfit for 17 years in Northern British Columbia, where you know the main species of our income was the grizzly bear and the stone sheep. So that was, you know, really our bread and butter and how we made our living and survived on. And as a lot of people know now that the grizzly bear has been shut down in British Columbia, that's had a huge detrimenting factor on a lot of outfitters that like us prior relied on that income. Um, 
you know, support their families. And so since then, 19 years ago now, um, I guess close 20 years, we've moved to the Northern Yukon where I continue to get outfit with the rest of my family, my wife, my sister, and my dad still flies for us. And, uh, so really my passion grew from growing up hunting, living off the land, you know, always being with first nations, having a lot of immense respect for wildlife. And I seen an opportunity where, you know, hunting and our hunting heritage is really under attack and the bear grizzly bear, black bear. I mean, all bears, polar bears are really on the forefront of the conservation issue and are the species that I feel are, are under the most attack right now. And, you know, we're on the front lines. And if, if the bear goes down next is a sheep, next is the elk, next is a deer. Pretty soon we lose traction. We might, you know, could lose hunting altogether. And so I, I, I really saw an importance to the bear trust mission and really got passionate about it. And I've known Charles a long time and all the wonderful things he's done. And so that's what really drove me to, to want to come on board. So, and your role within bear trust now, Jack, So I'm the director of publications and the editor of a magazine that we're putting together, uh, sort of um, um, sort of an annual journal that should be coming out either at the end of this year or shortly thereafter, uh, which is which is really meant to I mean, the whole message we're trying to send first and foremost is to celebrate bears, to to understand them, get closer to them as a precursor to making any kind of conservation effort. And bear trust is unique in that it's species focused, but it's also unique for for its priorities. I think there's um, <clears throat> we're, we're not necessarily uh, first and foremost, a hunting advocacy group, but uh what our ideal is coexistence is healthy coexistence between human and bear populations. And, uh, and I think that the ultimate form of that is, is to be able to have this, uh, sustainable hunting, uh, to have people interacting with bears in their ecosystem, that kind of thing. So in, when it comes to places like Northern British Columbia, where there is a healthy bear population, where it's hardly detrimental, it's it's not at all detrimental to take however many bears they were taking as of last year. Right. Um, for that hunting to be cancelled, you know, it's it's sort of it's it's not quite the direction of a healthy coexistence that that we'd like to see. So where there are, where there are crossroads of whether or not hunting can or should be should be open to the public, that's something that we'd like to lean towards. That's kind of the future we envision. However, the first priority is to have these bear populations be stable. Yeah. You know? So one of the things we're looking at right here in the backyard, you know, in the background of where we're recording this, is the greater Yellowstone ecosystem where grizzly bears have been recovered uh, brilliantly over the past 40 years um, to a level where scientifically it appears that a sustainable hunt, you know, if a few tags issued every year could be a benefit to the overall program. It could raise some money, you know, it could, uh, it could, it could allow, it could allow residents, it could allow Americans to really interact with these species. Um, how, how much is a, a grizzly tag? Well, they haven't been, they haven't no, been but, issued yet. But how much would they be? I mean, how, what is where the value? You, where yeah. you count on them? Not, not a lot of money. I mean, it's like a yeah, you probably know, a three hundred fifty dollar deal, right? And in British Columbia, um, it's obviously a lot more. I mean, these concessions that people own to have a quota for grizzly bears, I mean, cost upwards of over a million dollars. Some of them, and so you know, grizzly bear hunt would range from twenty to thirty five thousand, depending on where in North America you are. 
and you know it supports a lot of communities i mean these hunters come they it really allows an economical value to to support these communities and same thing with the polar bear i mean you see a lot of these uh first nation communities that have have really been affected negatively and you know i know a lot of them and they'll tell you i mean since they polar bear hunting has been you know harped on so hard i mean it really has negatively affected these communities and it really is sad because they relied on that income to supplement their their lifestyle we'll come back to the the yellowstone delisting because it's obviously a very hot topic but Indeed. because you mentioned um bc and it's something we've touched on and we certainly mentioned it and highlighted it when that all came through when the grizzly ban right um was actually commenced or when the first discussion about restrictions and then the ban a few yep. months later as somebody who's up in that part of the world and was directly affected by it. Just to explain that again to people because it's it's quite a worrying precedent to be set the way that that yeah. unfolded. You know, I think the most important thing to realize about Bear Trust is we, you know, we believe in hunting, we believe in conservation, but we are a science-minded organization that, you know, we want what's best for the bears. Now, we believe in conservation and the North American conservation model, but we also believe in biological data. And I think the the thing that was the saddest about the whole British Columbia shutdown of grizzly bears was it was completely social and political. And, you know, with the way the geography in British Columbia is lined out, you know, Vancouver basically voted for the rest of the province. And, you know, these people that are inner city people, urban people, maybe don't have quite an understanding um, like we do people that live in the mountains that live, you know, in these rural, rural communities about hunting and, and, and bear hunting in particular. And I think what is really sad is no biological data, no science was taken into consideration whatsoever. It was just a total political power play and based on people's emotions, based on people's emotions. And, you know, that's really, that's really a sad deal and really you know, that's what needs to change. And that's why I think bear trust is, is so important is because, you know, we're not ultra right, hardcore, no matter what we have to hunt. It's, you know, the end all be all. We're trying to take a middle stance saying, you know, we, we listen to the biologists, we listen to the fish and wildlife. We listen to, um, these ecologist specialists. I mean, bear specialists around the world. Um, we listen to the first nations, which is really important. Um, and we try to make sound-minded decisions for how to move forward and help the bear population. And I think that's really the only way you move the needle. You know, you try to, you try to come to the middle and, and, and hopefully open up a conversation and hopefully people that, you know, don't agree with us completely will, will do the same. And that's how we really move the needle to benefit bears in a positive way manner so species first right species and habitat right. first absolutely and, and really I, I really i don't think there's a hunter in the world that would disagree with that you know hunters love the outdoors they love wildlife they love animals arguably more than anybody and i don't think there's a hunter out there that would say if a biological data showed that we don't hunt any species in in this particular area because this is what the numbers are would say you know I still want to hunt. I mean, these people believe in ethics and they believe in helping the species be managed, but also flourish in a positive, in a positive way. 
and th- and that can work in a few different ways like in canada where you've got this um uh this trophy hunting for lack of a better term where people are paying upwards of a few thousand dollars to go bear hunting that's still that's still a a curiously effective sort of modern balance of how to how to have this this kind of interaction possible while still raising money to give back to outfitters who maintain the ecosystem who have a vested interest in the in the sustenance of these species you know and they're thriving and uh and and to gather this knowledge you know who, who have this understanding it's something that uh, that i don't think we want to lose you know i'd uh, I, I don't think we want to lose bear guides, you know, who have this intimate knowledge. I don't think we want to lose this tradition of, of hunting, you know, just, just for, I mean, we know, we know what it's brought our, our society. Well, you it's know? brought it to where it is today, yeah. largely speaking, around the world. Indeed, indeed. And so when you've got these, you've got dangerous precedents being set like this um, purely political decision-making on a, on a huge scale. Um, it's, I think it's equally important to sort of, uh, I wouldn't say fight it, but counteract it with examples of, of science-based, you know, data-backed, uh, leadership, discussion, decision-making, things like that. So that's what we're trying to really be an example of in every conversation that we enter into. Mm. I suppose it's important to emphasize that the the hunting that you're supporting for these species, in particular bear, which is what we're talking about here, is because there is a surplus of population that allows that to not negatively affect the core population. Indeed. And here in uh, in the United States, looking at something a bit different, you're looking at the possibility of a public hunt. Which is which is a low cost hunt for residents and I believe non residents as well, but for people from states other than Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming, um, that's that that works a bit differently. You know, it doesn't raise the same kind of money, but it doesn't have the but it's 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 state and federally administered land that that this would occur on. You know, and that's kind of that's that you know hopefully that is this accessible hunt. You know, for people to you know, go into their backyards and, and make full use of their public lands and, and the species that they interact with on a daily basis. And with this, we're talking about this potential delisting of, of yeah. grizzlies and Yellowstone. Yeah. Just expand on that a little bit and and explain why it's such a hot topic and it's so controversial. Because even us over in the UK, we've yeah. heard about this. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not something you have to dig too hard to hear about. Yeah, I'd say most people at home will have read something in the past six to 12 months about grizzly bear hunting and the delisting in, in Yellowstone or the discussion of delisting. Right. Well, it is tricky to understand. Uh, I've learned that because I've been researching an article for it that'll be upcoming in a in an issue of Modern Huntsman, uh, sort of a collab- collaboration between Bear Trust and Modern Huntsman. And in doing so, I've been talking to biologists, activists, artists, writers, uh, former government officials, and trying to get a full picture of the diversity of opinions because there is, you know, it is a scientific case, it is a political case. It's also an emotional case. Exactly, and um, and that's you know that that's that's fascinating. It really sheds a light on on the state of modern conservation. So it is worth explaining because it is it's it's kind of a bellwether moment. Basically, what's gone on is in in the 1970s, the grizzly bear population was at a severe low. It was kind of a climate of uh, highly extractive uh, land management in the United States at the time. Um, there so was a lot a, of sort of conflict killings because of conflict with agriculture and yeah that wasn't that wasn't regulated to the extent that it should have been but um 
times are changing. So the grizzly bear was put on the Endangered Species Act list, which is a tool whereby the federal government takes over the protection of a species, and uh, it gets it's it's sort of a boost in the funding and the and the acumen and the expertise around the conservation so of, it gets of an animal. People concentrate on that animal. A yeah, little bit better. it gets this federal support. Yeah, you know, and funding as well. Yeah, as well, and um, and a lot of attention. You know, that's always a big deal. The, the point of the Endangered Species Act is to get the animal off of it, right? And that is so key. Yeah, like understanding what you've just said is is really key. Exactly, exactly. Uh, it's in in so once you once a species recovers, uh, the the ideally the it's transitioned to state management, and that means putting in place a conservation strategy. So it's not like. It's not like it comes off the list and the grizzly bear is just like on its own again. Rather, it's the the, the listing provisions have brought it back to a, to a healthy and sustainable population. And there the real work begins of figuring out how states like Montana, Idaho, Wyoming are going to take over the responsibilities of this. So... And manage it. Right. Herein lies the controversy because the the question is, I, I mean, the conservation strategy was, was created soundly in conjunction with the scientists working locally and on behalf of the federal government and the national parks and everything. And... Um, but for the bear ecosystem called Greater Yellowstone, which which covers these three states and it's it's all around Yellowstone National Park, um, there's there's talk of the ability to sustain a public hunt. It looks possible. There's um the the bear population seems to have exceeded its um its recovery criteria. So a few male bears could be taken each year. Uh, the question is, which states are going to include a public hunting season? And Wyoming came out and uh, issued 23 tags for a hunt. Sounds like a lot. It does. To me, you know, I mean... That sounds like a lot, a lot just as a, in ignorance. It sounds like a lot. No, it's, you know, that's... Honestly, that's a bit questionable as to whether or not that's... Um, it's, it's a biologically sound number. But the problem about this is it just mobilized all kinds of antagonism. You know? Um, it's... Uh, it, it became a fiery issue, and the Wyoming state legislator was immediately sued by some anti-hunting groups, um, and a lot of these groups were formed quickly and put together, and it's held up the entire delisting process. So the conservation strategy, as Wyoming wrote it, cannot be implemented just now because it includes a hunt. So the question is, I mean, biologically, the hunt is, is supportable. Right, it's sustainable. So they've worked out how many bears you could take out over a season yeah. to not negatively affect. Yeah. When, when, when was this exactly? This happened. This was uh, a year this ago, was a year ago. Yeah, this was in 2018. Yeah, and then right before the season was meant to commence, people had their tags in hand. Right, the the um, the Fish and Wildlife Department was uh, sued. You know, and the court ruled that they had overstepped. They've they've sort of overreached their remit. In that, so it, the hunt was stalled not because of some scientific error, right? But rather because of the the way it was done, the the politics involved. So we still don't have, uh, you know, a, a legally recognized conclusion. This is the same. They're still listed, are they? Mm-hmm. This is the same incident where a bunch of celebrities and groups said that they're going to buy up the tax. Yeah, uh, in fact, uh, one one um, photographer who's very much outspoken against the hunt, he he drew a tag because it runs through a lottery. Yeah, and was intending on burning it. You know, 
Like, uh, but in the end, it didn't make any difference anyway. Right, exactly. So he missed his little Serge Gainsbourg <laughs> moment. But, uh, <laughs> but um, as it stands right now, I mean, the 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 very fact of including hunting, you know, was was volatile. Uh, the state of Montana did not did not include a hunt this year in their conservation strategy. You know, it's something that it's something that they can do later. You know, but it's because of that the the whole the whole recovery plan is moving forward. But this just shows that that we're not ready to have this conversation based on facts, right? That's the failure here has been in the discourse, has been in the public understanding of what's going on. Because if you take a glance at the debate, you'll find all kinds of biases and carefully selected facts and insults being thrown on both sides right it's really kind of gotten out of hand and the debate has gotten away from bears it's more about people it's more about opinions it's more about ways of life right um i've been fortunate enough to speak with with a, a variety of people who are who are pretty you know they 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 kind of have their priorities on the uh, on the scientific data and it's really interesting how they they feel powerless Compared to these currents of opinion, of you know whether even it's from, though they're the ones with the facts, right? Even whether it's from environmental groups that are funded by donations that come from people all over the United States, or it's from all the world, yeah, or local, you know, Wyoming like town councils, you know, who have their say. It's all just kind of, you know, it's 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 kind of hard to disentangle. This is something we're trying to do in this article for modern huntsmen and continually in our discourse with Bear Trust. Beyond just the numbers, what, what is the the purpose behind saying, okay, now we've got however many the science says um, we should allow to hunt in terms of grizzlies is it because of their uh, the, the bear's impact on the habitat and the other species within it it has to be more than just okay we've got enough to kill now right so there's there's a there's a few reasons behind that uh there's the the most abstract in a way is the idea that uh in america by the principles of the north american conservation model an ideal coexistence involves you know the ability the ability to publicly hunt these things you know for reasons like um uh, just just for public lands use rights and uh, sustainable harvesting like yeah. you do of, any, of many other species exactly you know and and it's a it's deeply embedded in the tradition out here in the west you know and uh, and it's understood differently absolutely by people who live in proximity with grizzly bears and and elk and sheep and anything like that um beyond that i, I don't know logan can you yeah you know i would say uh I would say there's also a biological proven theory that a certain age class of, of grizzly bear will actually actually be detrimental to the population because some of those old boars will actually kill cubs, you know, so that the sow will come back into heat, of which, you know, you kill, that boar just killed three cubs, you know, and just with one, with one sow and maybe one, maybe two. But I mean, there is biological data that shows that these certain age classes, which I don't like to use the word, but that certain age class that would be considered a trophy for, you know, a hunter is the age class that is actually negatively affecting the the population. And that's it, hard to comprehend. That's hard to, it's hard to, to think about, but anybody that really sees it in real life, which I have, I've, I've seen lots of boars kill kill cubs i mean i've seen it several times throughout my life it's you start to think well maybe if we we 
selectively harvested this bear and this bear and this bear, that'll actually increase the population, which everyone can agree upon. That's a that's a positive thing. The other thing that I wanna I wanna say, which it sounds silly to even have to bring up, but there is a certain amount of miseducation, misinformation about the grizzly bear hunt in the United States. And you only really get to see this. And I mean, it sounds silly to even say, but we're talking about the greater Yellowstone. We're talking about beyond Yellowstone. And there is a certain amount of people that think that the hunt is in Yellowstone national park. And you'll be, you'll, you'll think this when you drive to big sky to West Yellowstone, you drive from Livingston to Gardner, you'll see these billboards that say, you know, you didn't see any grizzly bears in Yellowstone, stop trophy hunting. I mean, that's the most outrageous statement anybody could ever make. It's not true. It's not, they're they're not, we're not hunting in Yellowstone. And I think there, there is a, not a large group, but there's a small percentage of people that, that need to realize we're talking about outside of Yellowstone. We're talking about statewide. I mean, we're talking about Tens of thousands of hectares over the right. over three states with Yellowstone nestled in amongst it. And also, this isn't even a geographical region. This is just a definition of... Yeah, uh, because it, it crosses uh, yeah. state boundaries. Right. Yeah, and this, yeah. Is just, this is just the extent of this particular grizzly bear range. There are several grizzly bear ranges in in the western United States, right? Uh, there's a northern continental divide ecosystem just north of us towards Missoula that has almost a thousand bears. And in fact, that's that's like, uh, I've, I've heard from some scientists working up there that that's in need of this kind of population control. And regardless of what happens with the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, this is going to, this is going to be the next question. Right. It's going to be upcoming soon. Once Montana gets its conservation strategy all the way up and running, they're going to be questioning whether they should have a hunt up there as well, you know. And I wonder if that will be as incendiary, in, incendiary well, because, because it's not called the other stuff, right? <laughs> right. So and, you know, not, and I would challenge some of these these activists that uh, are very passionate about what they believe, which is fine, to really come to the table and try to have a conversation because, you know, who they are who they are fighting are ecologists, you know, biologists. I mean, people that eat, sleep, and breathe wildlife biology, not just bear biology, but, you know, all wildlife and these people, their passion in life, what they, they have chosen to do their, to dedicate their whole life to is, you know, habitat management and really learning the ins and outs of, of each wildlife species and the endangered species act and how things coexist. And I would challenge people to, to have a conversation with those people and have a conversation with, you know, leaders of conservation groups or, you know, attend the wild sheep foundation and try to have an open mind. And, you know, we, you know, I, I pledge that we'll do the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, beyond uh, the impact on bears themselves, what is the, the impact of grizzly bears on their neighbors in terms of wildlife? Because they're, they are predators in themselves. So it's not a, it's not isolated. It's not just a discussion about bears. It's a discussion about bears and their impact on the greater environment. Right. Elk and moose populations are, are sort of pinned dependent on, to, on the grizzly bear population. Right. These aren't numbers that I've looked at for this particular ecosystem, but part of this greater management strategy is, you know, is, is keeping the predators at an ideal number. 
Yeah. Uh, so so that, there has to be a major consideration when they're deciding, okay, we need to is. take out so many bears because not just because of X number of bears in the area, but because of the number of bears and their interaction right. with their environment. And this ties back out to the, the sort of abstraction about the whole point of having a hunt here is because in the long term, we want to be able to be managing these populations with things all all populations yeah all populations with things like public hunting Mm. you know rather than just rather than culling Mm -hmm. um because that's just that's that's the sort of the north american way where you have people you know people who who want to be amongst these animals have the opportunity to go out and harvest one um you know keep the meat it makes more sense to involve indeed a greater population involve the public in public lands management on Mm. the ground at every level i mean that's something that i firmly believe in you know the more responsibility yeah the more responsibility and involvement that the that the average man has in this i mean the closer we are to our ecosystems the more we appreciate them naturally and it's also it's also a form of giving back it raises money it gathers attention, mm-hmm. you know, and it that fosters money closeness. And can then be used to continue the good work. It is directly, you know, it's, research it, it goes directly to Fish and Wildlife Department, state state management funds, things like that. So what what do you, I mean, maybe you, I don't even know if you'll have an answer to this, but what do you see as the future of this particular topic, the delisting around Yellowstone? Is there is there a next step that's been mapped out? I think the opening of the first grizzly bear hunt in, you know, Wyoming, Montana, and really taking baby steps and working with the fish and wildlife and trying to expand on it. Mm-hmm. It's tied up in courts right now, the right. decision over the Wyoming um, hunt. But I think eventually there's going to be attention turning to the Idaho and Montana state legislatures, especially with these, these fast-growing populations in northern Montana. Um, there's more attention on this issue, so there's going to be there's going to be a bigger, brighter conversation sure, about it. Surely now, though, uh, people in Montana should be ahead of the curve and already working on this. As yeah. in, the, the, the the hunting community need to be on this now before it even makes it to court. Indeed, indeed. I spoke with an, uh, somebody who was acquainted with the head of Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, and I understand that one of the reasons she made the decision not to have this hunt is because it, of the of the negative social reaction it would have. She didn't feel it was right time. Right. She didn't feel it would be effective, you know, to, to scare up this controversy immediately. But that, that doesn't mean that, that these institutions are ruling out, you know, the, the necessity of the goal of having this, this public hunt be integrated in a management strategy. You know, it's, it's going to take time, but to focus on the immediate ethical issue of this particular, um, high-profile case in Greater Yellowstone is is it's it just tends to lead the conversation um, into shallower depths. I, I think you're right, though. The yeah. name is the problem, actually. That's a big part of it. Because if you are outside of the U.S., you hear Yellowstone, and it doesn't really matter if you understand it or not, then you consider it part of the park. Yeah. I mean, this is an absurdly intricate <laughs> scientific issue that's being that's being discussed in, in broad, broad terms. You know, it's being protested over, over um, you know, really apparent and almost relatively superficial sticking points, you know. And uh, so, I mean, to complicate it is is what we're trying to do. You know, it deserves it deserves better attention. Right. Really educating people on the on the on the truth. I mean, the real biological data. I mean, it's so important because it's so easy to get defensive if you say 
you know, we're going to start hunting bears in Yellowstone. If that's what people honestly think, of course, your immediate reaction is, you know, we could stop this with every, every, Hell everything no. we can. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so it's really about, you know, educating people with what's actually happening. And it's such an in-depth conversation that it takes time to really learn and and see all sides and really... You can't understand to, it with a few sentences. No, what? really be able to, you know, have an opinion. What I find ridiculous, though, is that... I'm assuming it's the environmental groups because they're the ones with the money that are tying this up in courts. Right. But it seems like a ridiculous situation to me where they go, we don't like it, but we don't have a solution to, well, that's to the it. problem. And we and we don't have, I don't know, do they have scientists go, well, we, we don't have a solution, but our science and these are our scientists say, this is the reason why. And this is what you, you should you, be doing. They're not, they're not providing another call and go, time. we're stopping this because we don't like it. Like yeah. that's a ridiculous notion <laughs> right. of just like, well, we don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and what do you do? What, what's your solution? What are you doing for the bears? What's, you know, yeah. if, if you're going to, oppose something so strongly have a have a solution have a dialogue have a conversation i mean be able to really back up your your point in uh, in every way this conservation strategy uh, that is meant to be transitioned to uh from the delisting to state management it's it's a safety net right changing the the federal protections the management dynamics and the way it's going to be transitioned is that's what's up for debate so you you kind of have to look at who's offering a solution here you know the a lot of biologists a lot of prominent biologists and fish and wildlife department employees are are angling for the tried and true public hunting model you know, insofar as it's sustainable. And the alternative to that that seems to be proposed by interest groups is this sort of preservationist leaning that we should leave the bears alone, hands off. let them proliferate, you know, and if if, um, if they start negatively affecting herbivore populations or there's too many human conflicts, they'll just be cold, right? Um I'm kind of, you know, in, in, in my beliefs, I'm kind of skeptical of that because I don't think, I don't think removing humans from the equation of, of removing humans from relationships with their ecosystem, with other species, I don't think there's much future in that. You but, know, but, I that think, but that's how they tend to go. They should be left alone, but there's too many people now. Right, we're encroaching far too much yeah, on, on their ground. We've already impacted them. And we have this responsibility in our interactions with other animals to treat them better, not not treat them less, not, yeah. not avoid these these management strategies. I think integrating the, the growing number of people who live in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem with, with their environment, you know, and, and getting them involved in the management of it is a long-term much brighter future. I mean, this is, this gets into like large scale conservation theory. Do you want to, do you want to wall this stuff off? You know, well, you want to participate in it. Exactly. Exactly. Do you want people to understand it, learn from it, be accountable towards it, uh, pay for it, right? Help fund it. And in the long term, that's completely essential. Yeah, I think so. Cause it's, it's, it's coexistence oriented and, and, you know, you can, you can get briefly dismayed at the idea of, of, of the impact that we do have as a species. But I think rather than, than, than decrying that we should, uh, and removing ourselves, we should take a greater responsibility, you know, a more intricate and complexified understanding and responsibility for the other species that we, that we live around that impact us and that we impact. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't, 
it's very difficult to see uh, a long-term future in any wildlife management where there isn't a vested interest in the local people who are surrounded by it. Indeed. And I think that has been proven time and time again around the world. Yeah. It just it might work in the short term, but it doesn't work in the long term. Yeah, no, well said. And and I'd also like to point out, like, have a look around the world for countries where you have publicly funded and publicly interactive management systems. I mean, the North American model and public lands in America is worth preserving and and saving exactly because it is so exceptional. You know, I mean, I've worked in, I've worked in hunting outfits in Africa and, and that's, that's a, that's a sort of differently scaled, uh, economic balance of how to, how to get money back to the people who protect the land and interact with the species. And it, but it's linchpin is like international hunters, extremely wealthy international hunters, you know, it's not, and, and it, it you know, these, um, these efforts, they do trickle down to the local people, but the local people are involved on a totally different level. You know, if, if only we could all be so lucky to be able to live and thrive alongside wildlife, you know, like in places right here, like Montana, you know, and have our understanding of it, have a fortunate sense of responsibility and, and be able to immerse in it. Right. And really own it as Americans. I mean, we do. It's it's our land to be accessed, and therefore I think it should be our land to be hunted. Insofar as it's not, it, it doesn't detract. Is it insofar as it's not extractive or consumptive, overconsumptive? I I think it's you know I think it's kind of an amazing thing that we've got here, and it's it's harsh to see it backslide, you know, especially over short term issues, over over like hair trigger things, you know, like the case of BC where there's an election coming up. And so there's a chance to, there's a chance to direct some anger towards the hunting community, you know, things like that. And it's just, it, it kind of pulls back. It, it degrades the, the, the grander things that we've set up in North America. It's sad that wildlife is being used as political tools. Right. And that, that's, a, that's around the world. That's a sad state of affairs. Yeah, indeed. Pushing a political agenda. Yeah. And I would say, I mean, in, in the U S I mean, I would categorize the the grizzly bear as one of the largest success stories of conservation ever. It's incredible the and way it's come back. It's here. very easy to forget that, right? right? And so, I mean, but where it's come from. Let's celebrate these people. I mean, these officials have have worked tirelessly in these conservation groups that were like bear trust for forty years to get to this point. I just can't understand why people wouldn't say, well, let them keep running with it. Let them do what the data shows. Let them follow the numbers and follow what it, sh- it shows that we should be doing. We've got to this point based on them. Now you're going to, you're going to try to stop it. I mean, yeah, let them make, make any sense. Let them make that transition. Right. You know? And also it is worth celebrating. I mean, that's, that's, that's another thing right. Bear Trust is all about. We helped fund those recovery programs. Right. You know, we direct a lot of funds to, I mean, it, Bear Trust is partly an education organization. No, local, I want to talk a bit more about that. Locally in America. And yeah, we'll get to that in a moment. But, um, but it also is a fund that apportions money out to conservation projects. Right. Uh, successful local on the ground ones all over the world. Right. We, I mean, Bear Trust spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in support of habitat management and doing the right thing that the data shows us to do for the eight species of bears in the world. Yeah. And if you want a really great example, attend the, the wild sheep foundation annual convention in Reno, which is just being, which is, yeah. we were just there, um, last week 
I mean, millions. I, I think they raised five, six million dollars to go toward conservation. If you can see the impact that that organization has had positively on sheep, I really can't see how you you can disagree with with hunting heritage and conservation groups at all. I mean, the people, the passion, the habitat management, putting in water, um, transplantations to new states. I mean, it's it's incredible. Yeah. And I challenge anybody, go there with an open mind and, and just learn. And and you'll really notice that hunters are, are the true hmm. conservationists. It's always made me chuckle at the notion that some wildlife groups almost don't want to delist species. And mm -hmm. by that, I mean they almost don't want the success of a species getting to the point where it can be delisted. Because I made a note here when I was reading about it earlier, um, Endangered Species Act, um, Recover Listed Species, management is intended to be the ultimate outcome. Exactly. Yeah, and, and yeah. If if you always want it to be listed, what are you saying? What, what you're saying is that you've failed to get to the the point where it is recovered. Yeah, that's the. I mean, yep. that's the. That is the ideal outcome. It's kind of ironic, though, isn't it? It, it is. It is because I, I mean, you get to thinking of this in a in a in an almost historical way, and the natural way of life amongst animals is for them to be hunting each other. Yeah. You know, some predators will be combating with each other. You know, things will protect their habitats. Yep. Yeah. Encroach on others' habitats. It's natural. Yeah. As long as we're not destroying ecosystems, wiping out species, you know, as long as we're not, we're not being cruel to animals or, uh, or just having this extractive bent of human expansion, which is kind of the thing that conservation tries to restrain. The, the kind of Garden of Eden vision involves, Animals right. such as ourselves, right? Being amongst it, you know. And I mean, it, it traces back as far as you could ever read about. I mean, it's in the Bible. You know, hunting is is part of life, and for us, I mean, it's what we love. Mm. I think one of the the things when we were first talking about bear trust when we were over at your house the other night, Jack that really spoke to me was what you mentioned at the very start of this podcast was that your focus is on it's on the species first. And although you both hunt, the focus is the species and hunting can be the, the tool to help manage that. Yeah. And, and I think what uh, sorry, sorry to a lot on. of a lot of the species that we work with, I mean sun bears, oh, Asiatic no black bears, there's, <laughs> there's 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 no chance that they should be hunted. They're at extremely critical levels, you know? And that's what I was just about to get to was the the other incredible thing is that you're interested in all bear species, oh, all yeah. eight yeah. bear species. Bears you've never heard of, Byron. Well, exactly. <laughs> well, I've heard of them now, but there, yeah. was, one, there was one on the list. The sloth bear. The sloth bear. Yeah. I'd never heard of before. They're doing all right. Tell us a little bit about the, the species globally, because I think it's fascinating, and I'd probably half the ones on that list a lot of people will have never heard of. Yeah, I mean, you know, the cool thing about bear trust is I would say our, our main focus is on the North American bears, but we are a representative organization for bears, I mean around the world and like in India. I mean, if, if it wasn't for us, there's nobody representing that species. And we bring a certain light to it. We, we shine a light on it. And, you know, because we care about it, it opens it up to the public so people can really learn about the sloth bear, the sun bear, you know. And w without bear trust, I mean, those bears don't have a voice. 
Yeah. I mean, we're, we're also, one of the great things about this is we make links to those other efforts, you know, and to those other... In those, those countries. Yeah, there's other nature cultures going on. I mean, there's not a lot of international funding that makes its way to the Borneo Sun Bear Conservation Center. Right. You know, I mean, it's it's... These these species are kind of in in a lot of ways they're cut off from the from the mainstream attention yeah. and that kind of thing. But they're they're bears all the same, you know. They're fascinating all the same, um, and and they're threatened to an extreme degree, you know. And and we need to be recovering those populations as well, you know, just because some of these some of these populations are critical. So what, you know? what, what is the most threatened of all all of them? Do you know? Uh, the sun bear. The sun yeah. bear. Yeah. In well, why is that? Malaysia and Indonesia. Where yeah. does the threat lie? Is it, it um, it, it, I mean, it really lies in the fact that nobody, nobody knows anything about it. I mean, it's not a, a not a species that you know. Some people care about it, but not a mass population are that passionate about the the sun bear. And if if you don't have that, then yeah, there's there's only a few people working in conservation for that particular species, you know, and they're they're, they're underfunded. They're they're working hard, you know. There's um in that case you have a lot of you have some human bear conflicts, you know, that are you you get these conflicts with agriculturalists and that kind of thing, but there's also there's also a devastating demand from a lot of like Asian markets. They use them for bile farms, don't they? Exactly. For yeah. so That's, I've seen the video footage of that. And yeah, it's just horrendous. gallbladders yeah, of bear bile stuff like that is. Um, and they just they just treat those bears like factories. Yeah, they have absolutely. the pipe that's like continually yeah, connected awful. to them. And, yeah, so there's an illegal trade. There's the smuggling of these things alive and dead. You know, there's there's a there's raising of them all for what's considered traditional medicine you know which um which is just you know it's it's a it's it's a poison you know it's a destructor for all all kinds of wildlife species all over the world you know in africa and asia and yeah there's a there's a long long list of species that are rapidly declining for that market directly because of that and that's really hard to combat on a low budget you know when you also have habitat encroachment in their indigenous habitats Add know. that to yeah. the, the issue of poaching, yeah. and uh, yeah. So I mean, there's uh, the the more attention that we can direct towards our partners that side uh, in Ecuador with the speckled spectacled bear, uh, one of my favorites. Um, Curious looking animal, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like a it's like a raccoon. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but it's a bear. How, how big is it? Uh, I think yeah, I think it's about like table height, you know. But they're they're climbers. Yeah, wild Spend things. the times in the trees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one one of the things we're talking about is is fostering these links with with these partners more because um, because I think there is a there could be a public appreciation for these things much more than there already is. I mean, our uh, you know our first and foremost interaction with the public is to celebrate bears, mm-hmm. right? That's that's kind of what a lot of what we're trying to do with our media stuff now. Is I mean the the debates come when they're necessary. I mean, we, you know, we're, we're primarily interested in this vital mission of conservation in our own specific species corner of it. And, and the very existence of these things needs to be, it needs to be something that's enjoyed first before people start arguing about it. Yeah. And you're facilitating some of that through the education programs. Well, the, what, what I've seen of it has been on your website, and I thought it was fantastic that you offer this to schools. Explain how that came about and, and how you can access it. So that is one of the largest differentiating factors about Bear Trust that, that I love so much is, you know, really helping mentor 
kids into the great outdoors. Because if we don't educate, you know, the future leaders of our world, who is? And so what Bear Chess has done is we have established eight lesson plans. We have a new one coming out that we worked with, with uh, Melissa Hoglin did with the Wild Sheep Foundation and the Nevada chapter, which is going to be great. Um, we're really, really excited about it. So you can check that out on our website. Um, but our other lesson plans really you know, they're for all levels. So we have elementary, middle school, high school. I mean, you can work through these lesson plans. There's different ones. Um, but it's really about teaching these kids, showing these kids the, the data, not telling them. I mean, that's where, that's where bear trust is different. We're not telling them, you know, there's a right answer, or a wrong answer. We're giving them the information and letting them come to a conclusion. Come I, to a I conclusion did the on their, one. Right. Come to a conclusion on yeah. their own. I mean, and a lot of these people and little kids will find out exactly what, we're saying here and that you know that sticks with the biological data which comes back to what you're saying is the conservation model shows if if you don't want the species to eventually be managed then you don't really believe in a in a true success story and it really shows that you know a lot of the time like a lot of other things in in north america that you have a political agenda you know i mean you should want these species to absolutely flourish to the point where it's, you know, oh my gosh, we have to manage these species. And if if you don't, there's a there's a high chance that you have a political agenda that I mean you you really don't want them to succeed. And you see that with a lot of things going on in the country. I mean, you know, rather fail than be wrong. Mm, yeah. No, well said. Um, there's a lot of, uh, I, I, I really like that we support this because I think a lot of the opinions that, that come attacking certain management strategies uh, from both sides uh, wouldn't be held if people had a better understanding of what management is like, what human and non-human population dynamics, how, how they flow, what affects them, how they change and what, and just to immerse kids in that, just to show them that and let them mess with these simulations, explore them. Uh, puts you know it puts in their mind the idea that that we're involved in this directly yeah, yeah. and uh, from that will stem a responsibility you know it's just there's through understanding yeah yeah just through understanding how this works i mean i have i have conversations about conservation all the time you know with with people i meet strangers friends and uh, and i know it was something i was never taught in public school in Tennessee, for example, you know, there's just not, uh, there's just not an available understanding or education on the very basics of, of the idea of give and take and habitat management. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, the principles that it shares with gardening, you know, are lost on a lot of people, you know, just the simple, the simple take care of it, the simple, you know, this is, this is protected, this needs protection, you know, this is, this is free to inhabit, this is free to use publicly, things like that. Um, I'm glad that we're instilling that information uh, for free through public schools all over the United States. And, uh, you know, get, getting, getting the basics into people's minds because then, then questions start emerging. I mean, it's, these are designed to have the kids asking questions. Right. If you're unaware, oh, how yeah. can you be expected to mm -hmm. make an informed judgment? In fact, it's the strap line of our podcast is conservation through education. Yeah. Right. And 
It is. That's primary. I mean, I think that's. I, th- I think that's kind of the purpose is to allow people. In fact, to we, we've got some podcast. We, we forgot we brought some podcast stickers with us. Give you some podcast We're, stickers. You're gonna have some podcast right. stickers. Yeah, cool. and on the back it says <laughs> conservation through education. Yeah, perfect. And, uh-huh. All about it. Yeah. How can so how do, how do people if they're interested how do they access those those lesson plans? I'm going to try and so take some of those So you can go on our back. website. You download them. Um, they're mainly for teachers, yeah. and so we background check all the teachers, make sure you know they are who they say they are, and then we'll send passcode. So there's certain quizzes, tests, um, you know, certain GIS systems that they can unlock and, and kind of work through with their students. And so we kind of background check and then, but you can download them all for free, beartrust.org and check them out. Cause they're, they're cool. And, you know, we, we market them through STEM conferences and, and organically. And what we really try to do is we're trying to reach Kids in the inner cities, because I, I find it so sad these days that, you know, some kids don't even know where their food comes from. They don't, they think they get their meat from the grocery store. You know, they don't understand, um, you know, the very basics of the basic <laughs> of life. ways of life. I mean, it's, it's, it's sad. It's not their fault. Um, but you know, they've, this is what they've been taught and they're, it's, it's, it really is what drives us every day to get up and, and our whole board and our founder, Charles Schmidt, I, has passionately been working his whole life to to help these kids, help mentor these kids into the great outdoors and, and show them the facts and really teach them and, and have a voice for, for wildlife and, and, and hunting heritage as well. But really, really just the, the biological data of right and wrong. Mm. And kids enjoy it because we're showing them their agency. Right, as 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 citizens, as humans, right. Well, what, what's on their doorstep as well, potentially. Mm-hmm. Indeed, yeah. Which they don't really know about. It's exciting. It's it's fascinating stuff. And we should also mention it's it's totally um it's totally in line with uh, public education criteria. So yep. it's it's a fully it can be integrated within the yeah it is curriculum. it's, it's yep. part of a it's it's part of your. It's part of your school day if your teacher implements it, you know. And I wonder if we could get or, it implemented or, or, at home. What would it be under, though? Would it be under, like, biology or would it be under... I was thinking geography. 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 Yeah. yeah. Um, I wonder if we could get a transition over to you UK criteria. They're probably not so different. I will... It's something I'm going to look at when I get home. Yeah, it'd be well, really interesting. Scotland has a different system to England. Yeah. Um, I, I would probably say it'd be easier to get into the Scottish system than yeah. it would... Yeah. Because it's a smaller system. I'm going to find out. Yeah. Uh, I've still got contacts with the schools we went to, so I'll go and just ask the question. Because it, w- it would be it's, interesting. It's easy material yeah. and engaging material, and it's fascinating. It would be interesting to do an international lesson plan. Oh, it'd be great. It touches on all the species, well, you know, and it's... It is international, you know, with what you're covering, isn't it? Most of what we're covering is is American species because it's in American schools. But I mean, if we could if we could do a broader conservation theory based one, we'd covering ones in Europe and yeah, and Borneo and uh, you know Spain closest to your home, yeah, Sweden. Yep, and I mean we do have a little software uh, GS on our website, um, Bear Basics, where you can see the different bears, see what the countries they are, and learn a little bit about them, but. Most of it is North America, but I think it'd be really cool to do an international lesson plan. And Bear Trust, you know, actually gets contracted out by a lot of these larger conservation organizations, such as the Wild Sheep Foundation, to really handle their education lesson plan platform, you know, because we're so well-read in, in already doing these lesson plans that these other groups have reached out to us, asking us to do one for them. And that's been very effective. I could see some crossovers there. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Yeah. 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 Look forward to that. Something to discuss off the podcast. That'd be great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, I saw and read on your website that you are 
looking for funding to put together a film which you've gathered a whole heap of footage on about the survival of, of Sunbears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, we tell are. us a bit about that because yeah. I mean, we we do shout outs for things like that all the time on the podcast, so people can find their way there and maybe yeah, give some you know, donations. it goes back to us really being the only the only voice for the sun bear and and the sloth bear and a lot of those international bears. And I guess what we're trying to do is we're going to raise money to put the right foot forward and back the the local um, officials over there, the local biologists, local fish and wildlife and be able to apply more support for them so that they can have a larger reach to positively impact, you know, like the sloth bear, the sun bear. And, you know, so yeah, we're raising, we're raising money. We're always working hard to, to put money back on the ground and and really help bears in North America and internationally as well. Because those efforts, they need their public face as well that they, that they kind of lack in terms of crossing borders in terms of getting to places where, where donations tend to come from. Right. And you know, I mean, it's easy to donate to bear trust. We have a donate button right on our page. You can go to and, and, and make a one-time donation. Um, we have the spirit bear society, which is our premier giving uh, benefactor society for our, you know, really committed supporters and donors. And then, I mean, really we we're open to anything where how we can help. I mean, bear trust is here. Bear trust is, is alive and healthy and we're, we're really looking to help. And I, I really see in the international stage, a little bit of money will go a really long ways. I mean, because there, there is nobody else and, and we, we have to stand up and be the, be the support for, for those agencies. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I dare say we're, we're rolling things out. We're evolving and growing as an organization faster than ever. We're getting involved in a lot more, uh, projects, ties with international partners and things like that. And we're always interested in people's collaboration. You know, you're welcome to write to any of us through our web links. Um, if, you know, with any ideas, with any conversation or discussion or questions or interests, um, we, it's, it, it's something we absolutely welcome because first and foremost is just to appreciate this species and good things will follow from that. Very well said. Logan, something I wanted to, to roll back on that you were talking about near the start was the um, collaborative workings and huntings with First Nations. Yeah, explain so, how that works here because it's something that doesn't exist really across in Europe at all. Yeah, so you know I see it mostly in um, in Canada in in two territories in one province, so British Columbia obviously, and then the Yukon and Northwest Territories. You know the Yukon, there's thirty thousand people there, twenty five thousand of them are probably First Nations, and these are people that live off the land. These are people that love wildlife. They they live in the elements and they really appreciate hunting for what it is and probably more than anybody want to see hunting and, and wildlife thrive. And so we work with, you know, a lot of the government agencies in the Yukon, you know, a lot of the ministers of environment, um, our first nation, a lot of the agency people are also first nation, which is, I mean, fabulous. And I've been so blessed to be able to get to know some of these people and have these conversations about, you know, what hunting means to them, what conservation means to them and get their input. And we have, we've taken that and we're going to do even more in the future um, with Jack's article. It's going to be coming up here and implement that into our lesson plans, implement that into our conservation programs and our conservation policy strategy. And I mean, these are people that, I mean, this is their land. I mean, they understand it as good as anybody. And I think a really cool film to do would be about the polar bear. Cause going back to what I was saying before, I mean, these are people that have been 
negatively affected by the slowing of, of, and in some areas, not being able to hunt polar bears. Indeed. And one of the things I'm really excited about is expanding these media projects, which will just get other forms of knowledge, other angles on conservation involved in our discourse. You know, um, we're, we're going to be doing some, some exploration of, of, uh, of other of these other perspectives where we're going up to Yukon to have a talk to a lot of the locals you know and and kind of being amongst that we'd like to visit some of the other projects internationally uh because you have different you have different whole biological and environmental perspectives you know from when you're talking to people from different ecosystems you know and you can't you don't want to place your assumptions on the 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 governance and management of sun bear populations you you want to find it out and that's right. something we want to be leading is the is people this, who live uh, in those areas know, know better exactly yeah, so right. we want to integrate this we want that to we want to be sharing that around as well because there's different ways of doing conservation in different habitats you know, and it's uh, all can be learned from. So, so one of the things that we're working on that I mentioned was this uh, this magazine, this journal, um, and a lot of just media work uh, around that, um, films, uh, articles, that kind of thing. And really looking forward to getting getting that to blend different perspectives on conservation and human bear relationships, and really just celebrate that and you know complicated be fascinated by it so it'll, it'll help raise awareness of the species their place on the planet uh, and also the conflicts that yeah are around them which is an ongoing investigation you know we're not it's not something that's static we're not settled with our wild wildlife for the most part we're destroying it you know there's 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 more to talk about here you know just just globally you know more to more to appreciate about bears than 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 we commonly hear you know mm. it's strange that it's widely accepted that black bear hunting goes on in north america and yet you add another species to the mix the grizzly and suddenly everyone's up in arms yeah. is that just uh, an outside perception or is it generally like there isn't much controversy that surrounds black bear hunting Ah, not not as much as grizzly bear for sure. Yeah, yeah I'd, say, an irony I'd say grizzly bear and, and polar bear are very... Uh, iconic species. Iconic, very sensitive species. And people, which is funny, I mean, people just don't have as much hostility and, and protection toward a black bear. And, you know, it's important for people to know that these species, grizzly bears, polar bears, black bears, I mean, you're using the animal. You know, people eat bear sausage bear jerky people i mean these animals are being used and being cherished and being you know appreciated and really it's it's a funny line how polar bears and grizzly bears have been kind of iconically isolated away from even different bear species and and for people to be able to say oh i support black bear hunting but not grizzly bear hunting is I mean, it just does shows. that happen within the hunting community? Yeah, it yeah. does. Well, and not in, in not in the hunting community, mostly in in the anti-hunting community. Okay, they say we understand black bear, but right, which is, which is which is which yeah, is. that's, that's so it's based on the same kind of science. Yeah, and it's not attacked in the same way, you know. But uh, but black bears aren't aren't as threatened, you know. No, I think true. there's kind of this knee jerk reaction. There's there's just a common misconception that hunting is eradication. It's destructive, you know, and that's that's we don't even have to have right. a very deep conversation to point out <laughs> but that it's scientifically false, right? <laughs> and if you that's what Jack says, just perfect. I mean, if you look at the 
the numbers, the population, and then you compare that to the quotas that resident hunters and guide outfitters that are, you know, guide outfitters, basically somebody that's legally allowed to take a non-resident hunter um, in a certain concession. If you look at the populations of, of black bears and grizzly bears, and then the quotas for the amount of animals they're allowed to selectively harvest, it's, it's the same. So it, it doesn't make any sense that you can't hunt grizzly bears, but you can hunt black bears because it's the exact same percentage of bears in a quota comparative to the population. In BC, that is. In BC, yeah. yeah. And, you know, if, if you talk to any of the First Nations in the Northwest Territories or any guides, I mean, these are people that live, eat, sleep, and breathe, you know, being in the mountains in the Northwest Territories, they'll tell you, I mean, they're overran with grizzly bears. It's not, it's not uncommon to be on a 14-day doll sheep hunt and see 30, 40 grizzly bears. And these are bears that, you know, they're, they're very confident. They, they have a lot of conflict with, with these hunters and because they have no, no, nobody managing them. They have no predator, you know? And so I just, it's, it's frustrating, but it's, it's something that we're working on. And I really, I think the first nations are going to have a huge play because they're who knows better than, the First Nations. I mean, really, they're the least de disconnected from right. that and, world. And people, exactly. people need to listen to them more. Okay, I mean, everybody is all immigrants in Canada, U.S., whatever. But I mean, so much of the population that's voting against hunting, against grizzly bear hunting. I mean, they're people that have only been here 20, 50 years. I mean, these First Nations people go generations and generations and generations back to their ancestors that understand it and have seen it evolve, seen it succeed. And they really know how to keep it alive. And, and we have a large first nation support and we support them. And I think it's, it's an important conversation people to really wake up and say, maybe I don't know. Yeah what's best. Maybe I should listen to some of these elders and listen to some of these biologists and listen to the people that, that live for it, study it and know the truth. It's strange how we, we seem to be increasingly living in a world where everyone feels like uh, every, each individual's opinion has equal weight. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. Yeah, in a democratic right. society, we all get to give a vote and at least express right. our opinion. That, that, that does not make us the lawmakers. Exactly, and it doesn't. It doesn't make us equal because, just like you've just said, Logan, there are lots of people out there who have dedicated their lives, possibly to the you know the science and research of a species. So how can you? Uh, how can somebody as a, an individual who lives in the city who's never even seen a bear in their life think that their opinion is more valid valid than the, the it's, science it's, of someone who spent thirty years studying it's it? So silly it's like there's people that they're an experts why should you know it's like say we're in an airplane why should a passenger of the airplane have the same amount of say as the pilot i mean the pilot clearly knows how to fly the airplane why should you know the passenger's weight have the same as somebody that's a complete expert it's in a the, good in analogy the it's <laughs> almost like yeah. uh, referendum politics <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> what you're feeling the backside of just now thanks for that yeah. it's like anything it's like healthcare. i mean ask the doctors and the nurses and the you know the patients i mean ask the people that really really know you know i mean anyhow that's the world we live in but and you know i think uh, i just like to say that hunting is is a way of of it's way for individuals to know how to coexist 
you know it's a it's a priority it's what what we talked about a lot on the last podcast it brings great understanding yeah it's a kind of it's a form of self-education right it's it's a form of i mean you learn to gain that authority you get closer to the animal i mean if 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 you want to if you want to have a greater say in management decisions as a citizen you should practice more management right you should be you should educate yourself and and hunting has been my greatest educator you know i've never studied any kind of science or biology or conservation management or anything like it but i've worked in the hunting world for the past 5 years you know and i've it it gives me both a felt responsibility and it's it's the source of whatever acumen i do have you know and it, that that comes purely through a personal pursuit you know, I, I would consider the teachers there to be animals primarily, you know, to be the environment and the things that I was interested in and observing and encountered, you know, and secondarily, the, the, the people amongst it, you know, I mean, it's the most direct form of education is observation, you know, I mean, this, that's just to say people should get out more and have more opportunities to get out more and have more opportunities to interact more closely right. with our, with our animal cousins you know yeah and i mean i think the more that you know the two sides would meet each other i would ask people to you know don't judge hunters on the one percent of the people that might post something on instagram that's distasteful that might you know be a little out there and 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 we will do the same with our opposition and because 99 percent of the hunters that you meet are the most compassionate loving of the outdoors wilderness it's not about the kill it's not about you know, this bloodthirsty approach. I mean, it's about being in the outdoors in God's creation and really understanding wildlife and being there for the beauty that enholds everything that has to do with the hunting heritage. And so for the right reasons. Yeah. I would say, you know, I would just ask people to, you know, judge people on the, on the 99% of hunters that really are conservationists that really love it, that live for it. And, you know, I think that's, that's a very positive way to, to move the needle and, and we'll, we do, we'll do the same. I mean, and you can speak to that probably more than most because you do guide a lot of people. Right. And I mean, the, another thing is like, there has to be a very strict line where people understand. And this is so important to understand. There is such a difference. I mean, it is between hunting and poaching, you know, and a lot of people, a lot of people sometimes, not everyone, but a lot of people blur those lines. And I think and the media does. The media time. does because it's a political, you know, dream. And I think it's important for people to understand. I mean, the, the people that are against poaching the most are hunters. 100%. I mean, it's like anything that gives you a bad name. And, and it's important for people to understand on both sides that there's, we need to listen to the mass and not get caught up in this political agenda to take something to run with it because one person did something that was, you know, maybe a little distasteful. Else, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. When it comes to like outfitter hunting, uh, hunting concessions, things like that, it's, I always like to point out that these are the only people in the economic realm, uh, in the ec economic dynamic that have a vested interest in the long-term survival of species. I mean, even photography outfits don't, you know, they don't really raise like, like eco tours, you know, they don't raise the money. They don't have the, the species health incentive, right. That, that, that hunters do. And that's, that's just kind of a cold and terse 
just you know proof of of hunter's commitment back to conservation beyond that if you start spending time with people you'll notice that they also have a sincere love for exactly this mission you know it's it's a belief it's it's something that keeps them awake at night when it's not going well you know it's what they work for and spend their life on outfitters around the world if they don't if they don't take a long-term view yeah their business and their livelihood and everything quickly no business but it's natural you know it's natural to them because you you fall in love with this stuff the more the more time you spend out there i mean you know every time you go out in the woods you see something you've never seen before you know and so how could you not get addicted to that if you have the opportunity to yeah i mean a, a perfect example is uh jack and his his dad spend thousands to buy these bighorn sheep permits here in the unlimited area and they take out weeks of their schedule to go out in the mountains and and hunt a bighorn sheep and i heard from both of them the coolest thing about the whole thing is you know they didn't get a sheep that's another thing people need to understand i mean you don't just because you go hunting you you harvest an animal (laughs) you know and it kind of ties back a little bit what you said about (laughs) 23 bears that sounds like a lot well yeah okay but what you need to understand is 23 permits get given a percentage of those people can't even make it to go on the hunt okay so and then you say you're down to 20 and then maybe only half those people actually end up harvesting a bear and and those 23 tags are going to be taken with fish and wildlife conservation officers are going to go along with some of these hunters and take them into areas where here's this bear that i think we should harvest in this subzone now let's go over to this subzone with this other hunting party and you I know, didn't realize after. it was as granular as that. Right. And okay. so what goes back to my point, though, is is when I talked to Jack and, and Mike both about their, their bighorn sheep hunt, none of them, they didn't talk about hunting or killing or anything. All, they talked about getting to see these animals and, I mean, the beauty of freaking getting to spend time out there as father and son. We were, and uh, it was so cool. They saw a mountain lion. I mean, yeah. it's to see a mountain yeah, lion. Yeah, we were walking down a hill and it had the wind in our face just roaring. And out of out of evergreen trees you know an orange lion steps out and walks in front of us and because of the wind he didn't even notice us and to be like 50 meters from this you know this thing that i mean i saw it and i'm like leopard i'm like what do we do oh they have these here I never would have expected, you know, it was the last thing I was expecting. And it slunk across us and it had its eyes forward, didn't notice us, you know, like it was on this thousand mile march. Yeah. And we just crossed paths with that. And that was, that was holy, you know, that was, and uh, you know, it was another thing that comes to mind when I start thinking about that is our founder of Bear Trust, Charles Schmidt. um, I guide him in the Northern Yukon a couple years ago and we, we find this lone ram is by himself, no teeth, 14 and a half years old. I mean, no possible way this ram is going to make the winner. And I think it's important to understand there's a certain amount of emotion that goes along with taking an animal's life. And, you know, you, you sit there and you're watching this sheep and he has a hard time getting up. I mean, he's, he's an old monarch of the mountain. I mean, he is the epitome of, of a spectacular fan and sheep. And now, I mean, we harvest this sheep. That ram is, there's replicas made of that ram, several mounts. He's been all over the country. I mean, it's like we've shared him with friends and family and really, I mean, we've made him into an icon. I mean, we've celebrated his life, celebrated his, I mean, 
it's just, it makes you want to cry when you, you start thinking about, you take an animal that could have died in the mountains, never to be seen. No one ever knew it existed. You're talking three, 400 miles north of a town and you can harvest an animal, share them with the world and really appreciate them for the rest of your life. And I think a lot of people read over that and they don't understand that. I mean, we appreciate these animals for an eternity and I, I, it goes back to, that's the most important thing about hunting. It's not about, it's not about killing something. It's about cherishing memories and cherishing the life of the animal. Yeah. And this is something you can't just say and it makes sense, but I mean, isn't it the most among the most impactful things of your life? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, By far. <laughs> that's hard to convey, but, but try it and you got to try it because yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's not words. You feel it inside. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, we, you know, ideally we want people to be able to do that. Even if it's just a few bear tags, you know, that, that indicate the, uh, a, a direction of coexistent management, you know, and allow kids to like grow up reading about grizzly bear hunting, you know? and know people who do so, uh, for, for that to be a part of their cultural understanding and hope and tradition, you know, uh, just, just the sheer possibility of it, uh, gets you outside, gets you sympathizing with bears, empathizing with bears, you know, gets you reading about it, gets you, gets you, gets you caring more, you know, you have to, I think you don't really, it's hard to believe in something that you haven't experienced. Right. You know, and so we want to, we want to foster the ability to experience this and not just talk about it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I really believe that. That's why it's so fun, you know, taking kids out and, and trying to mentor the, mentor the youth into the great outdoors is, you know, you're, you're just trying to give them a new experience. You're not telling them they have to be hunters. You're trying to just broaden their horizons. And I honestly believe I could take the most anti-hunter in the world and, you say, I need two weeks of your time and you take them to the Yukon and you go through these first nation communities that you donate all the meat back to these elders. I mean, these seven year old people, we carry hind quarters of moose meat onto their, right onto their kitchen table. And, you know, and you take these people into the mountains, into the vastest wilderness in the world and the effort they have to put in. I mean, the, the physical effort you have to put in just to get anywhere near a sheep, let alone, you know, a 12, 13 year old ram that is of, of an age to, or worthy of harvesting, you, you might not change a person, but you're going to, they're going to have some appreciation for what you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, we, we talk about this on huge scales, you know, on theoretical scales, mostly on ecosystem management scales, but uh, hunting is such a community thing. You know, it's something that it always has been. revolves around an ecosystem, uh, bounces amongst the, the, the members of that community, you know, is appreciated accordingly. You know, celebra ce celebration is like, you know, there's almost ritualistic ties of appreciation to a wider ecosystem. I mean, all, all this good stuff, it, it occurs on a very individual and personal scale. And it's difficult to, you know, we're, we're fighting this battle to defend these, this very personal experience you know in community connection uh at a you know we're trying to defend it internationally um but i mean i think it comes down to the stories i think the most powerful thing that that we ought to and continue to share is our insights our stories you know what's moved us what's made us care what's brought us here you know so it's only very recent times that communal hunting 
wasn't the centerpiece of every community around the world. Yeah, that's I mean, that we, yeah. we have all arrived to where we are now because of it. Yeah. And it's very easy to forget that. Yeah, and that's just that's just indicative of our removal from other species. And it's been rapid. I think that's that, that's the issue that we face is that the removal has been so rapid well, certainly, that people uh, have lost their understanding. 100 years. Yeah. yeah. Which, you, is, you, which is a blink you, in the eye. You've got to look straight after... World War One, World War Two. People were still catching rabbits and everything because there was a few food shortage. I'm talking about in towns and cities, yeah. and, and people were eating rabbits, locally uh, caught stuff in the UK and Europe because all the supply lines had been cut off. They had no choice but to find food locally and, and, fend, and, for and fend for themselves. Yeah, because there was food rationing. And imagine, like at the same time, where we sit now. Southwest Montana. This place was like Alaska back then, you know. <laughs> and uh, it's it's not so long ago. And I think that the cutting of those ties to your to the very ground itself, right, to to the ecosystem, to you know, getting your sustenance from it, having an understanding of it, seeing even seeing the beauty, you know, the the loss of that for so many people in the world today is the loss of an opportunity. You know, we're not about trying to go backwards. We're about trying to go forwards because the things that have helped me and the people I know and love around me evolve most in their life. For the most part, they come from the natural world, you know. Mm. Gentlemen, it's been an incredible discussion about a topic that I didn't know a huge amount about. And I would imagine most of our listeners have gained a huge amount of knowledge from it. So thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure. Hey, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. As always. That's it for another two weeks. I hope you enjoyed the show. I, uh, I've, I've completely forgotten what's actually on the show because I'm not editing this one. This is like the second one ever that I haven't edited. Uh, but I remember the conversation at the time, so I remember it being a good show. Don't forget to enter our competition to win uh, the second last of our Hornady reloading manuals. That is the latest edition. It is the reloading manual that I use myself. And all we wanted to do, uh, you to do was tag us or send us a picture of you and your best mate in the field. As we said, that's probably going to be a dog. <sighs> well, I am away to go and have my breakfast slash lunch even yeah because you've, you've had an interesting week so far yeah i have and then i you're gonna tell everybody or just leave them hanging no, like that I'll, t- <laughs> I'll tell everyone i'll tell everyone uh what am i gonna do i need to go and do some washing and then uh get ready for the evening because i've been flying a drone all night uh looking for wildlife in particular waders that's what i've been doing and we've been particularly successful at it we, we knew we would be because we've been testing it for three years now finding different techniques of trying to find it we've used like daytime surveys of like big mapping things of like 3d and then we've done daytime thermal that doesn't work and then we've also done uh well it does work but Just not, not as well not as well and then we've been doing nighttime stuff and uh we've been very successful i think last night we found 10 10 nests with chicks in it uh grouse lapwing found oyster catcher no not yeah we did find an oyster catcher and then we found uh a curlew as well which uh is really hard to find like one of the most endangered bird species in the country incredibly hard to find but we found it and i knew golden plover the day before golden plover which is over the five years of them studying they've only found three nests and i found one of the three it's amazing Uh, right we you should we should probably say that this is part of a very long research project with the german game conservancy but actually occurring in scotland yes yes. yeah Uh, with a local um hunting estate 
I would also point out that I do have a license to fly the drone because I guarantee someone will point that out at some point. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so no, I am fully licensed, and uh, but it's it's really cool working in doing this because I don't think anyone else has ever done this. In, well, not as far as we know. I've never seen anything. No one, I don't think, has been looking at birds' eggs no. Because I can Are see. Are you able to ID what the bird is yet? Typically, yes. You, you can normally tell before they go yeah. down. Yeah, oh, I can. Amazing. I can see if it's a grouse. You can almost tell a grouse straight away. Pheasant has a really long um, tail, so you could, there's no heat coming off the tail, so you can see that the body's glowing. But you can see you can actually see how long the tail is. Uh, okay. The curlew, you can see its. Um, you can see its beak. Its beak. So no you way. can, but it's not 100. percent You've got to be quite close to them. Uh, so I think we're pretty good and at pretty min- minimal disturbance doing it this way at night they don't move so they either if they're sitting on something they won't leave the nest so it doesn't disturb them and then we go over and check them and even if sometimes they do they go about three meters and then come straight yeah. back and we can see them doing that and it's a whole monitoring exercise with, with cameras and research oh, this and is all this is professionals this is yeah. ecologists and uh, scientists doing it so really great to be working alongside those guys yeah yeah, and, and they, they can't believe how well it works as well. If if we wanted to do rabbit or hare counts, <laughs> it would be unbelievable. Are you able to ID hare and rabbit? I mean, on the top, you're probably not going to see rabbits anyway, so it's mainly going to be You hares. can. I mean, the hare are bigger. So, I mean, not always. The leverets are obviously small. But uh, so you have to pick you, your time of year, basically. you typically know as soon as you get to a certain point, there's not going to be any rabbits yeah. there. So, so you've seen a lot of hares? Loads of hares. Really? Loads and loads of hares. Hey, that's interesting. Yeah. That would be a great way to do a survey. It'd be There would be the easiest things. Bear in mind, I'm looking for an egg. Yeah. So that's actually really hard to find. A hare is so easy because they're always bouncing around yeah. everywhere on top. It would be so easy. If you want to do deer counts, maybe on the open hill I'm talking, I interesting I did actually test it in the forest uh, yesterday and you can't see through the foliage the canopy the canopy, mm, uh, the canopy it, stops you it blocks the heat signature. yeah so because I expected to, to see through it perhaps see through it but I couldn't see a thing through it so there you go learning lesson for you if you're looking top down in the forest it doesn't it doesn't shine through the trees or do you need to escape from thermal thermal when you go into a forest <laughs> Maybe with a better thermal imaging camera, but not with this one, unfortunately. But definitely, I, mean, I can see sheep from three, four hundred meters away. Easy. So if it was a deer, bear in mind, sheep are really well insulated. So often if a sheep's lay down from the top down, all I'll see is its head. Oh, because it's cold on the outside of its wool. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> They're really well insulated. Well, we were amazed, and I think... I, I think Actually, I don't know if I have mentioned this on the podcast. Uh, oh, no, we did on when I spoke to Francois about the pangolins. I mean, they were amazed how the scales actually just transported the heat out. They obviously use it as a cooling system. It's opposite climate to what we have here. And they're not so worried about keeping heat in. I hope you enjoyed the show. Join us again in two weeks' time. 